Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and the entire universe. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, author of the upcoming young adult novel, Victories Greater Than Death. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of the upcoming book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, which is all about modern archaeology and what it can tell us about why we abandoned ancient cities, even though they were so awesome. Such an amazing book. So today we're going to talk about cuteness. Yeah, so we're going to talk about cuteness and how kind of cuteness has become more mainstream in pop culture in the past 20 years. And, you know, why are we so obsessed with cute things and cute iconography? And why is there a new emerging academic discipline called cute studies? So let's get ready to get cute. Woo! Cuteness has always been with us, but it feels like in the 21st century, it's become a much bigger deal in the United States, partly because animated shows have become a bigger deal and video games and kind of a lot of pop culture that kind of centers a sort of cartoony aesthetic. And part of it is the Japanese influence, like the rise of kawaii culture in the United States, the importation of anime, Hello Kitty, gothic Lolita fashions, Pokemon, other stuff that's invaded the West. And then internet culture also has gotten very cute with lots of like cat pictures and memes and lots of kind of like internet speak that is very cute. You know, so Annalie, what do you think is causing this kind of rise of cute culture in the West? It's a huge question. And obviously it's overdetermined. But I do think that cuteness, as you said, it's associated with animation and with kind of alternate worlds, in a sense, a way of reimagining reality with kind of a a filter on it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's important to contextualize it in internet culture, where so much of what we see is filtered, whether it's, you know, Instagram filters, or it's filtered through some kind of bubble, an information bubble. And so I think it's a lot of it is connected to kind of the stylization of everyday life, and turning everyday life into a kind of fantasy realm, a kind of virtual reality realm. And I think there's some obvious reasons for that. Some of it is purely about, as you said, importing more Japanese pop culture, uh, the rise of K-pop music, which is also Mm -hmm. has a lot of this kind of cuteness aesthetic to it. For sure. And the fact that platforms like TikTok are kind of based around, in some ways, I mean, and again, this is where it gets complicated. In some ways, part of success on TikTok involves being able to create a kind of cuteness bubble. And a lot of the videos that go viral on TikTok have some element of cuteness to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that makes you squee and want to hit the like button or the heart button. All of these types of obsessions with the sort of cute video or like the cute cuddly animal crossing creatures are comfort food you know yeah. it's it's about it's it's about childhood it's about safety 
It's about having a filter that covers up the blemishes and the dark spots and the scary stuff and the wrinkles and becoming kind of an idealized version of yourself. Again, this can be connected with reality TV. It can be connected with influencers, but it can also be connected with the fact that especially in the last couple of decades, we've been living through really tough times politically. Mm -hmm. um, You know, we're dealing with climate change, which feels insurmountable. And so it's really tempting to retreat into a kind of candy colored world where everything is soft and bunnies can talk to you. And like the most important thing to do is like collect shells at the beach, which is deeply important, but also very important, you know, voting is good too. Hearing you talk about this, I was just thinking that, you know, part of what's happened in the past 20 years is the rise of cuteness has happened in in tandem with the rise of dystopia and post-apocalyptic stories and The Road and Walking Dead and like Game of Thrones and Grimdark. There's been this bifurcation where on the one hand, you know, there's been the rise of sort of grimdark and depressing, scary, kind of jagged, bloody kind of quote-unquote realistic entertainment that that just kind of wallows in the nastiness of human nature and the nastiness of life. And on the other hand, there's this kind of escapist fantasy of like, what if everything was kind of nice? And what if everything was cute and fluffy and we could just be really nice to each other? You know, I feel like those are the kind of the two poles that we kind of orbit in the in the 21st century. Those are the kind of two. And it really is in some sense about escapism and kind of niceness versus darkness and Mm -hmm. kind of like horribleness. And they're both kind of infantile in a way. Like neither one of them is grown up in the sense of like having more complicated feelings or more kind of like introspection or more kind of like a sense of like, I don't know, mature relationships. Or ambiguity, you know, which I think of as like kind of a hallmark of adult storytelling is that, you know, that you can kind of hold two truths in your mind that someone can be kind and also be evil or that someone can be good sometimes and bad sometimes. That's a really hard story to tell. It's not as Mm -hmm. satisfying. There's something really dangerous happening in pop culture when you see such a strong bifurcation where you see narratives that are just totally purged of anything sharp or dark or gritty And then at the same time, you see narratives going the other way where everything is just super gritty and there's like no redemption and there's no love and there's, or if there is love, it's all based on like betrayal and transactional crap. These are childlike stories. These are stories that are simple. They're like fairy tales and they don't even necessarily rise to the level of a traditional fairy tale, which often has a pretty complicated message. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the same malady. If, if we're going to call it a malady, a symptom. It's the same symptom that cuteness and grimdark are kind of part of, are symptoms of the same problem. So interesting to think of it that way and to think of it them, them both as being kind of infantilizing. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I think there is something to that. There is this new discipline of cute studies, which was founded by this academic named Joshua Paul Dale, and there's cutestudies.org, and there's like a giant cute studies bibliography. That actually leads us to like the next question, which is, what are the ingredients of cuteness? What are the kind of signs of cuteness? And, you know, apparently a foundational text in the the field of cute studies is this 1979 paper by Stephen Jay Gould, the kind of naturalist, where he talks about how Mickey Mouse has changed over the decades. And it's a, a famous paper called Mickey Mouse Meets Conrad Lorenz, 
And basically his thesis, Stephen Jay Gould's thesis, is that Mickey Mouse started out as this kind of scrappy rodent who's like on a steamboat. He's steamboat Mickey. Steamboat Willie, but yes. Yeah, right. He's kind of this like tough, you know, uh, kind of a scrappy rat kind of who is on a boat and he's out there getting his whatever you get on a boat. He's salty. He's salty. He's a salty sea mouse. And then over time, Mickey Mouse becomes more childlike and more kind of his features become more simplified. His eyes get bigger. His everything else in his face gets a little bit smaller. And he becomes more kind of like non-threatening and more more babyish kind of in a way. More domesticated. More domesticated, yeah. And that's when he becomes the Mickey Mouse we all know and love who will welcome us into Disneyland. And so, Annalie, what do you think are like the defining features of, of cuteness? Well, I used to read a website uh, about, God, 10 years ago now called Cute Overload. Oh, yeah. And um, which I, I still mourn the loss of Cute Overload. I mean, maybe it's going in some sad form at this point, but it was sort of around the same era as I Can Has Cheeseburger and, and roughly in the oh same God. vein of like just cute animal pictures with really funny headlines and really funny cut lines. The woman who created the site had a taxonomy of cuteness where she talked about like what makes a cute animal. And right. it was a lot of the same stuff that you were talking about with like the, the evolution of Mickey Mouse, big eyes, tiny nose, little feet. I'm sure you, you can find it online if you look for like rules of cuteness, cute overload. But a lot of it has to do with having the features of a baby animal. And in biology, scientists will sometimes talk about how when animals become domesticated, they go through neoteny, which means they just look more babyish, that like a, a domestic dog has a more babyish face than a, than a wild coyote. And humans also have been domesticated. We live in houses and we, we eat cooked food and all kinds of other stuff. And human faces have also, over the past 20,000 years, changed a lot to make us, you know, we've become less hairy and our eyes are closer together and a bunch of other stuff. The characteristics of cuteness generally are um, childlike features. Um, furriness is really helpful, too. Mm -hmm. Really soft, soft Fluff. fur. Being tiny. Mm -hmm. um, small. Um, being small. Yeah, S-M-O-L. Mm -hmm. There's a whole, like, I love that there's, like, a whole internet language around it. Like, you can be a chonk, or you can be small, or you can be a boy, B-O-I. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, like, that's kind of, like, the cute version of boy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it has a lot of other meanings, too, that that we have talked about in other episodes, but it also does just mean, like, a cute, small creature. Mm -hmm. I think that the other thing about cuteness is that it's not just a look. It's also certain behaviors that are mm -hmm. cute. Those range from things like, yay, you know, like jumping around happily because of mm -hmm. something else that's cute. To yeah, bounciness. Bounciness, like, and being really energetic and cheerful. But I will say, and this goes back to your point about grimdark, is that there's also a strand of cute behavior that's mean. And there's, like, mean cuteness. And there's mm. kind of the um, Tim Burton version of cuteness of, like, a nasty skeleton that's kind of cute. And, like, you right. know, they're like, we're playing with bugs and it's kind of cute. There's something there that's like stepping on a spider or like, um, right. you know, plucking the wings off flies can also be weirdly cute. And I think that's, again, it goes back to the, the childlike part of it. Yeah. 
you know, it feels like pop culture has been offering us a lot of cute icons, like in the last decade. And, you know, right now, everybody's obsessed with Baby Yoda. Yes. Show me the baby. (laughs) Sorry, I just have to say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, in our our Star Wars episode, I feel like we talked about the idea that, like, one of the defining features of Star Wars is cuteness. And one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why Star Wars has become kind of the most successful space opera franchise of all time is because it incorporates so much cuteness. Mm -hmm. Like, you think about what's cute in Star Trek or what's cute in Andromeda or Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar, actually, original Battlestar Galactica had the weird fluffy creature, the Moffat or whatever it was called. The Doggett, I guess it was called. Every time there's a new Star Wars thing, you know there's going to be a new cute creature or a new cute droid. Actually, and that is a feature of the movies. Like, every movie, they will introduce some soon-to-be toy creature. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. I was trying to think about it. I was like, Star Trek has Tribbles? It has Tribbles. and But Tribbles pose a problem. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not a feature. They are literally a bug Mm -hmm. that gums up the system. And so you can't just have rampant cuteness because it will just lead to like breeding and like probably girly stuff will happen. And that we already know that that's not acceptable, especially in first generation Star Trek. And then there's Doctor Who where the doctor is cute. The doctor is very cute. The doctor is always freaking cute. Especially like the 21st century doctors like David Tennant, Matt Smith, Mm -hmm. Jodie Whittaker. Not so much, I would say, Peter Capaldi, but... Peter Capaldi has got a cuteness thing going on, though. He is actually cute. He's got that he cute, has a, like, it's like an winky. impish, yeah, It's like an no, impish right. air. Yeah, and this, he is really cute. Yeah, and actually, all the doctors have been cute. The old... Because you can have an old cuteness. Like, there's mm-hmm. little kid cuteness, but then there's, like, the cute old lady, cute old man thing of, no, like... true. Which is, again, like, because there's this idea that when you become old, you kind of develop childlike traits again and stuff. But the doctors always have... They always have waffly hair, which, like, <sighs> key cuteness indicator. Like, where is your hair on the waffle scale? If it's all the way over at 10, you're a doctor. Especially starting in the 70s, the doctor started to have, like, first kind of frizzy hair and moppy hair and then... You know, the doctor has always had a waffly haircut, no matter what. Even the oldest, even the first doctor had a waffly haircut. Is kind of just—it's a mad scientist haircut, but it's still a bit waffly. Still a little waffly. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say when we were talking about Star Wars, I was like, what are other space opera franchises that have gotten to be like a big deal? And the one that comes to mind immediately is Guardians of the Galaxy. And guess what? Guardians of the Galaxy has going on. It's got Rocket Raccoon. Mm -hmm. It's got Groot, especially Baby Groot. Yep. You know, the smartest thing they ever did was like ending the first movie with Baby Groot because then you're just like, okay, wow, I have to see more of this. Yep. Like Baby Groot just like made everybody desperate to see the second movie. And Rocket Raccoon is a great example of that dark cuteness yeah. that we were talking about where it's like he is he's a dick. freaking cute, but he's a total dick. He's always mowing everybody down with his weapons, but he's still cute. He's basically in that weird overlap between nasty and cute, mean cuteness. Yeah, and so what are other, you know, cute icons? What's your favorite cute icon of the last, like, five years, Annalie? I am a big fan of Baby Yoda. I like Baby Yoda, and and it's interesting because Baby Yoda in recent episodes has done some things that are kind of awful, like eating someone's unborn babies, which is kind of creepy. Admittedly, they were unfertilized eggs. I get that. I live on the internet, too. But come on, that was—everybody thought that was gross and weird— And I mean, even when he's not eating sentient 
creatures he's eating frogs and uh, he eats living creatures Mm -hmm. he is not a vegetarian and he also has a thing a cuteness thing that i associate more often with anime which is that he's overpowered so he's a little tiny cute wuffly guy Mm -hmm. but he can lift you know, a one horn with one hand. Mm-hmm. He has like psychic powers that are like tremendous. Like, and and we know they're only going to get more tremendous. He can probably kill you with his mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so in that sense, he's a kind of almost bordering on the manic pixie dream girl in a weird way. Because the, one of the characteristics, we're going to talk about manic pixie dream girls a little bit later, but one of their characteristics, like if you have a, uh, a river type character from Firefly, right. you know, is that they're super cute until they kill you with their mind, right? Mm-hmm. Until they like beat the shit out of you. That is a huge trope. It's yeah, a huge sure. thing, yeah. You know, I actually wanted to mention a couple of recent movies that kind of play into what we were just talking about, which are like Detective Pikachu mm-hmm. and the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, both of which have kind of like a cute cartoony video game character in the quote-unquote real world. And you have real human people interacting with Pikachu, Mm -hmm. wearing his little Sherlock Holmes hat, or with Sonic the Hedgehog. I feel like this is a thing that's been going on in movies for a long time, definitely going back to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. But the fact that now we have the technology to do that kind of immersive, like, We can have a cute kind of CG character running around and causing havoc in a real surrounding is something that kind of gives us a different relationship to cuteness, I feel like. And particularly like Sonic the Hedgehog, whose whole thing is that he just runs really fast and smashes everything. I mean, I think we see this in like E.T. as well Mm -hmm. as some of the other kind of like 80s cutesy movies that also often have like robots and stuff like that. Right. Cute robots. I mean, it's interesting. I want to like dig into this a teeny bit more. Like what's the difference between having a cartoony, cute creature in the real world? So like Baby Yoda in a Mm -hmm. live action show or E.T. or Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever versus... Steven Universe or She-Ra or even Pokemon, the mm-hmm. the animated series, not the Pikachu movie. Like, what's the difference between having a cute universe versus a cute creature in our universe? It's really interesting. I mean, often when there's a cute creature in our universe, it's kind of disruptive. It's kind of like this thing that kind of sticks out because it is in contrast to its surroundings. And it's often kind of a little bit destructive or a little bit kind of messy and like like Baby Yoda eating everything in sight or Sonic mm-hmm. the Hedgehog smashing everything in sight. You know, and often the world kind of perturbs a little bit in response to having this creature in it. Like things just get a little bit cuter in general. Like the all the humans are just a little bit more like, whoa, what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know? So the cuteness is infectious. Yeah. Or you get the E.T. scenario where the bad humans who are part of the government or the science or or they're part of like some kind of like military industrial complex um or like a science military science complex that is has all of their cuteness has been drained out right Mm -hmm. and they're trying to contain the cute thing they like have to eliminate all cuteness from the universe and i feel like that's another trope and it's oh and often it's portrayed as like grown-ups versus kids you know like the kids want to have the happy cute world and the grown-ups are like no Yeah. We need to put on our lab coats and be serious now. Thinking about this from a 21st century context, 
where we've seen the rise of Greta Thunberg and other young people who are kind of standing up about climate change and gun control Mm -hmm. and other long-standing kind of intractable issues that adults have pretty much decided, well, we can't really do anything about that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's too hard. Capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Kids are basically like, no, you know what? It's not okay to just have like murder everywhere and to like destroy our natural environment so we can't breathe or get clean water so that we don't have access to resources going forward. And, you know, it is kind of this thing where like, in a weird way, Part of what's happening in those scenarios is that kids are kind of, because they're quote unquote more innocent, they're pointing out kind of the obvious, but also in the case of like kids kind of being leading the charge on climate change, it is kind of kids having a greater understanding of nature and of like our natural habitat and our biosphere, whereas adults are married to this giant crushing machine that we've built. And so it is kind of like almost the Princess Mononoke thing of like, Cuteness is aligned with the natural and with Mm -hmm. the kind of, you know, the healthy in a way. And the opposite of cuteness is the artificial, the kind of metallic, the the sterile. Like in She-Ra where you have... Yeah, the Horde. The Horde and Horde Prime. And like their defining characteristic is basically that they're just completely messed up inhuman in a weird way. Well, and and guess what? Same thing in Steven Universe, right? Yeah, where it's like literally inorganic, although very cute. Like pretty much everything in Steven Universe, including the bad guys, is cute. I don't think the diamonds are very cute. Yeah, they get And cuter. they're the kind of chief bad guys. They do get cuter as they're redeemed. I mean, it's interesting that the bad guys in Steven Universe are raping the environment. Like literally, they're like punching holes in the planet. They're like destroying organic life in order to create like crystal mm-hmm. inorganic life. I mean, in Steven Universe, it is portrayed as a, a kind of a battle between the organic and the inorganic with Steven being kind of the the mixture of both. But at the same time, in a lot of ways, the the inorganic is the cutest part, like the gems are the cutest. And even some of the evil gens like Spinel and Spinel's not evil. Spinel just has some issues from the way she was treated. But, you know, there are a bunch of other sort of really scary but cute gems who fight Steven at various times, including Peridot at first. Mm-hmm. As Steven Universe goes on, I feel like the human character's frequently risk getting pushed to the sidelines so that we can focus only on the gems because the gems are the cutest and funnest part. So I don't know. I think it's complicated. But I do think that there is a thing where cuteness, part if we're going to posit cuteness as kind of an escape from postmodern, late-stage capitalist kind of dystopia and environmental collapse, cuteness is in some sense you know, an attempt to return to the natural, even though, as we just said, cuteness is an artifact of domestication. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it it is very much associated with domestication, but at the same time, a lot of cute creatures, as we've been discussing, are tricksters. You know, they're, they are much like the natural world and that they're kind of unpredictable and they can be destructive as well as cuddly. So that's, Definitely one of the versions of cuteness is a kind of uncontrollable but adorable force, which actually serves to bring us together because we realize, you know, we have a bunch of stuff in common. We all have to catch the crazy runaway zoopy flop with the waffly <laughs> floof, right? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, we're just, we're like, that's that's our job. 
I mean, that's what filmmakers wanted to do with the Fantastic Beasts movies, you know, was to turn it into like chase down the Wuffly Fluff. Um, And then we all know that that series went in a and then it became really Grendel Thorpe or whatever weird direction that Grumpy didn't thump. really work out for anything anyone Grumpy thump. yeah but I think that there is definitely that strand well why don't we take a quick break and when we come back we will talk about whether cuteness is a problem and also the dark side of cuteness the dark side of cuteness what For this episode, I read up on a bunch of articles about cuteness, and like I read up on the Cute Studies canon. We're going to link to the Cute Studies bibliography in the show notes for this episode. And one of the things that is brought up a lot in discussions of cuteness is the idea that it's harmful, and particularly that it's harmful to female-identified people who are encouraged to be more infantilized and to be less serious and to be pretty all the time, and that it's kind of tied in with a lot of internalized oppression. I think that there's an undercurrent when people worry about too much cuteness in pop culture that our culture as a whole is becoming feminized. Do you think that these are serious concerns or do you think that this is just people kind of exercising their own internalized misogyny or a little of both? You know me, I'm like all about a little of both. It's both things because we're grownups and we actually can sustain an understanding of ambiguity. Ambiguity! I know, we don't explode if we hold two thoughts in our minds at once. You know, some of the anxiety is the same anxiety that you saw during the 1970s disco era, right? Where there was this fear of like pop culture feminizing men and turning women into something that we didn't understand either. I wanted to return to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope briefly to talk Mm -hmm. about this. One of the debates within discussions of cuteness has been over this idea of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl who's basically a stock character in a number of sci-fi and fantasy stories where it's just a super cute but also competent woman or girl who's often a love interest and can sometimes be kind of gothy. And I think the allure of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is that she's both cute and smart Mm -hmm. or cute and uh, powerful in some way. Uh, So she embodies this kind of contradiction. Right. Or she kind of satisfies the urge to have the tiny little wuffly girlfriend, but at the same time, because she's competent in some way or because she has powers, like in a Harley Quinn kind of way, right? that we can kind of pretend like we're not buying into these sexist tropes that girls need to be tiny and wuffly. I'm just going to keep using the word wuffly until <laughs> we're sick of it. I mean, that's what's interesting about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is it's, it's trying to sort of split the difference between girl power and girl cuteness. Powerpuff Girls, if, if folks can remember back that far. Diablo Cody is making a new Powerpuff Girls TV show right Which now. makes total sense because Diablo Cody is like literally the auteur of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Like right. I, don't, I don't think she ever writes anything but that, which is fine. I mean, I, again, I think that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl can be a powerful figure to return to the Harley Quinn example I have a concern, not that our culture is being feminized, which I'm like excited about. I think, you know, more feminization for everyone. Because if it wasn't good, we wouldn't want to do it. For sure. (laughs) And I mean, feminizing is a victimless crime, okay? It's not like murder, you know? Like the girlier you get, 
you know, just the happier you are. There's no, no one is harmed by this. You know, we need to guard against cuteness bringing us back to a place where we are insisting that women need to be diminutive and, and domesticated and adorable. But at the same time, we need to be wary of condemning cuteness because it can become a way that people explore their bodies and their expression and their gender in a healthy way. It can be a way that um, men are able to be adorable mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. able to be waffly themselves and like like doc- like the doctor in Doctor Who, who's like a waffly guy oftentimes. Yeah, and I think that to the extent that there's a central ideology or kind of ethos of cuteness, it is to be nurturing. It is the idea that like cuteness goes along with a certain nurturingness that like, you know, when you encounter a cute creature, you want to take care of him, her, it, them. And mm-hmm. pet, pet them and fuss over them and be nice to them. And that if you're cute and you get hurt, people will like take care of you and that cute people take care of each other. And that like the idea of like being feminized and the idea of like male identified people being feminized is in part that they will become more nurturing and less like toxic, that this mm-hmm. is kind of an antidote to toxic masculinity. I think where cuteness is is kind of problematized or where it becomes legitimately a problem is when it becomes kind of selfish and like all about like, look at me, how cute I am. Look at like, it becomes egotistical. It becomes like, you know, I have to be the center of all attention and I, you will nurture me. I will not nurture you mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's kind of like, when we think about the dark side of cuteness, that's what we come to. And I think that, you know, part of what's been going on in terms of the dark side of cuteness is that as cuteness has pervaded pop culture in the 21st century, we've seen more cute things that are spiky. And, you know, I've talked before on the show about my obsession with the Harley Quinn animated series. You know, it had some issues, especially in the first season, with some kind of edgy humor that didn't really work for me that crossed the line. But at the same time, it is a show that is very cute. Like Harley Quinn is a very cute figure. And I think actually Deadpool is another figure who I think is very cute. And like, especially like kind of cartoony and kind of like adorable, but also gruesome and bloody and like destructive and selfish and kind of like a problem. But I think that part of what's lovely about both Harley Quinn and Deadpool and as the, you know, their ascendancy to kind of the top of pop culture as our reigning king and queen of kind of cute superheroes is that they're kind of lovable and also they refuse to be tamed. They refuse to be kind of controlled and they're chaotic They kind Mm -hmm. of mess everything up. They don't clean up after themselves. They just go around causing like mayhem everywhere they go. And I think that's like a thing that comes from cartoons, the idea of just like mayhem. Mm -hmm. The animaniacs, literally. The idea of like mayhem and destroying everything in sight, but in such an adorable way. It's like in, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender, which I finally binged because it was on Netflix. There's the running trope where they're constantly being chased or chasing someone and they knock over this cabbage guy's cart in every episode. And he says, my cabbages. And it's like, on the one hand, you feel bad for this guy whose cabbages are constantly being messed up, but it's adorable and it's funny. And it's like, oh, my cabbages. And like, and it's in the service of cuteness. And I feel like that's kind of like, it's kind of liberating in a way, the idea that like, you can go and make a mess. And sometimes you can mess things up that need to be messed up. I want to tug on a couple threads here because one thing that you brought up that's super interesting is the idea of untamed cuteness. And we were talking before about domesticated cuteness. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's like 
tamed and untamed cuteness. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a good way to think through that question of like, is cuteness something bad or dangerous? Because an untamed cuteness does something very different in a narrative than tamed cuteness does. I think of Cinderella when I think of tame cuteness, like how her relationship with nature, she subjugates nature. Right. The mice. You know, the birds do her bidding, the, you know, the mice do her bidding. Like, it's not like Princess Mononoke where she's like part of nature and she's like, right. she occupies a place within nature. Instead, it's like, oh, I'm the princess and the mice are my footmen. And like, it's not Mm -hmm. all of the cuteness is very tame. That's why the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is such an interesting figure because she is kind of untamed cuteness, but often the narrative trajectory where we find her is is a story of her being tamed. Right. And um, and which is, you know, a bigger story about how women are treated in general (laughs) in in pop culture. You you have an untamed tomboy who has to learn to be a princess or whatever or, you know, learn to be subjugated to the prince. But I think that's really interesting. And the other thread I wanted to tug on here was about what these kinds of cuteness are reacting to in our real world. Because I am a big believer in pop culture as a as a response to real life events. It's not an exact science, of course, but I think what you were saying about how the cute figure, regardless of tamed or untamed, elicits nurturing from the mm-hmm. people around them is so interesting because we're living at a time, especially right now in the United States, our political leaders are neglecting us. Mm -hmm. And the worst abuses that we've suffered have involved governmental neglect, uh, neglect by the healthcare system, neglect from the places we think of as nurturing. Mm -hmm. Um, Government is complex, but like at its core, the government is supposed to serve the people. It's supposed to be have a caretaking function. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing so many fantasies about cuteness at a time when we're dealing with anxieties about who's going to fucking nurture us, you know, who's going to take care of us if our leaders can't, like, can we imagine a creature that will enforce nurturing, you know, like, how do you come up with a magical figure whose power is to build nurturing in the world around them? And I think Steven Universe deals with this super well. Yeah. Um, and and really kind of asks those questions right out. Um, the Mandalorian is asking those questions too, because the Mandalorian is set during a time of incredible political instability. Right. The remnants of the imperial regime are everywhere and and still have power. The new republic is like kind of dodgy and like isn't really that helpful. They come in occasionally and help. But one of the things I've often wondered about Baby Yoda here is fan theory ahead, excuse me. But I wonder if, I always have wondered if Baby Yoda has like a psychic power that makes people want to take care of him. Oh, wow. The Mandalorian, before he met Baby Yoda, was just a bounty hunter. Mm -hmm. And then he meets Baby Yoda and suddenly he's like, I'm going to risk everything, including all of my family in in the covert to like save this alien baby (laughs) like that's a really interesting idea and we see in a whole bunch of other scenes like the doctor who takes care of baby yoda when Werner herzog gets a hold of him the doctor like does everything he can to protect baby yoda and like i'm like what if that's yoda's power and maybe maybe we need something like that right now maybe we need a superpower that gets us all to remember 
how important it is to take care of each other and important it is to take care of the most vulnerable among us. And like, gosh, I wish I could implant baby Yoda in the White House right now and just like force everyone in the White House to be like, wait, we need to take care of people. (laughs) That ties into a thing that I'm obsessed with in general, which is empathy and the fact that, you know, if we had more empathy as a species, if we had more, you know, awareness that other humans who are not our immediate family or our immediate in-group are are suffering and need help, that everything would be very different in our society. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about that. You mentioned Steven Universe, and you and I have been watching Steven Universe Future now that it's on HBO Max. And yeah, like, which is so good. And it's all about like how Steven is now 16. His old coping strategies are not working anymore. He's no longer just able to fix everything for everybody else. People don't need him the way they used to, but also his cuteness is kind of getting out of control. Also, he's not as cute anymore. Yeah, because he's a teenager. And I won't spoil the ending, partly because you haven't seen the ending yet, but also our (laughs) audience might not have seen the ending yet. But his body is kind of getting out of control, and he's turning like randomly pink and kind of getting... Yeah, yeah. He's hulking out a bit, hey? He's hulking out a little bit. And it's interesting. And, you know, I've been watching more of the new Adventure Time spinoffs, and it's really interesting to see how the Adventure Time universe always has this undercurrent of danger and kind of scariness and spikiness, but it's couched in cuteness. And part of that cuteness does kind of promise in a way that things are probably going to be okay in the end. Like even Ice King gets to be kind of okay and everybody gets to kind of be okay. And, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but, and Adventure Time is a great example of a story that's very much about, especially the original show, is very much about a male hero and his friend who is like his best bud and like they're kind of like guy bonding but it's just adorable and their form of masculinity is just super sweet and cute and nurturing and you know i hope that kids who are growing up watching cartoons like this are going to be you know grow up to be better people than those of us who grew up watching gi joe or whatever not that gi joe wasn't awesome so Emily, as a final question as our kind of resident horror movie expert i wanted to ask you about why are there so many horror movies especially recently about like a creepy doll about scary children about like things that are cute but sinister and just terrifying Yeah, I mean, the creepy clown is obviously a huge trope that also goes back a long, long way. Scary children, again, like, you know, you could go back to fairy tales. Um, You know, this is a a recurring human fear that seems to transcend time and place to a certain extent, too. It goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning with how cuteness is a kind of filter. Mm -hmm. We use it all the time on Instagram, like when you turn yourself into like a cute puppy or like a fairy or like whatever you're doing to make yourself sparkly on Instagram or whatever fucking app you're using. That's exactly the fear is that, that this is a kind of that cuteness is a form of manipulation. Mm. It's a it's a curtain that you pull over the truth. I think this actually helps us understand a little bit about those fears around cuteness. The fear of feminization is also a fear that uh, something really dangerous and toxic is pretending to be cute. Mm. When I played D&D when I was a kid, one of my favorite monsters was in the Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, which is a very classic D&D module. And there's, I'm sorry, if if you haven't played it before, I'm about to give you a spoiler for the module, but 
there's a monster called a bunnyoid. Mm-hmm. And you get into this environment and you see this cute little bunny on top of a, a tree stump. And of course, if you're me or the members of my party, you're like, let's go pet the bunny. And then as soon as you get there, it rise, the, the tree stump and the bunny rise up. And it turns out that the like bunny is like a little head decoration on top of like a basically like a sarlacc, like a giant mouth. Rah! You know? <laughs> and um, with like tentacles and everything. And so I think that's why we we have this continuous tug of war between being seduced by cuteness. And when I say seduced, I don't mean in a sexual way. I mean like hoodwinked by mm-hmm. by cuteness. But at the same time, yearning for it because it is comforting and mm-hmm. it, we do like to be nurturing and we like to be nurtured. And so it's too easy to fear betrayal. You know, the kid's going to grow up and stop being cute or, you know, the bunny is going to turn out to be an angry monster. And indeed, in many, many stories, they do. So I think the flip side of cuteness is always monstrous. And again, those two options are very simplistic options, Mm -hmm. right? What we really need, I think, are stories that can hold both things at once, that can say, yeah, like, this is a character who needs to be nurtured, and this is a society that needs nurturing. But at the same time, we have to be wary that there will be bad actors who will take advantage of our urge to be caretakers, and we have to guard against that. So we have to be good at, like, sussing out which cute things are truly vulnerable and truly need care and which are actually bunnyoids. Yeah, watch out for utility monsters, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much for listening to this show. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Uh, you can find us every two weeks at ouropinionsarecorrect.com. We are on Twitter at OOACpod and Facebook as Our Opinions Are Correct. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Every dollar you gives us just makes us cuter and more nurturing towards the universe and helps us. And you to, do get special extras, very cute audio extras, very cute extremely audio extras. adorable, um, you know, Lots writing prompts. Squeeing. In fact, my writing prompt uh, a few weeks ago was, was all about cuteness. Yeah. So you can find out more. So we really appreciate any support you can give us. You can find us everywhere podcasts are found. If you can leave us a review on Apple podcasts, talk about how cute you are, talk about how cute we are talk about everything that's like cute and adorable and awesome. And we want to thank our amazing, brilliant audio producer, Veronica Simonetti, and the wonderful, indispensable Chris Palmer who provided the music. And we want to once again- Who is also cute, by the way. Yes. Everybody involved in this is extremely cute, I have to say. And uh, we want to thank you, the cutest people of all, for supporting us and for listening to us. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye! Bye!